In the time that we have, grab your Bibles, Matthew chapter 2. You're going to get used to these 11 verses, particularly verse 11, uh, because we are wanting to start a new series uh, exploring the gifts of the Magi. Uh, so today we'll look at go, then of course, frankincense and myrrh. Matthew chapter 2, and we want to read the first 11 verses of this chapter. Of course, Jesus has already been born because the Magi weren't at the nativity. They, they come a little later and... Uh, we pick up there. If you'll stand with me out of reverence for God's word, we'll pick up in verse 1. Matthew the evangelist writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we ask every time we gather the same thing, because we need the same thing each week, that you would open our entire beings, our hearts, our mind, our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our hands, and our feet, that we would believe in your word, apply your word, be transformed by your word, which brings us to the Christ of your word. Give us the gospel that we see here in this Christmas story. And may I decrease so that you can increase. Name your son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. I don't, I don't know about you, but uh, uh, for, for a long time I've always wondered is, where did some of our traditions come from for Christmas? After all, we just sort of grow up doing things, and then we, we, we just sort of get used to them. We do them every year. And, and wh- where did these traditions come from? For example, uh, why do we decorate trees? Isn't that a bit odd? We, we find evergreen trees in the middle of the winter, and we decorate them. Well, according to the 30 seconds I spent on Google, I discovered that we should probably blame the Germans during, during the Middle Ages. And in the early 19th century, when Germans started to immigrate into the United States, they brought with them this tradition of decorating trees. Well, not just decorating trees. Where do decorative Christmas lights come from? There's another Grinch there for you. Well, according to one tradition I found, I don't think it's true, but I like it. Uh, we can blame the great reformer Martin Luther, another German. I'm seeing a pattern here. Uh, Martin Luther, the story goes, went into the, the forest, as men tend to do. He, it was late at night. He looked up through, into the sky through the trees. He saw the bright stars, and he got an idea. Now, I don't think any of that is true, but it, 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 I, I find that to be a fascinating legend nonetheless. What about mistletoes? 
Mistletoes, isn't that strange? Right? You, 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 you put a mistletoe up hoping to stand underneath it so that someone will give you a kiss. I, I believe uh, Zers will find that. Uh, I think their word is creepy. Is that, is that the word? I don't know. Uh, Generation Z. Well, according to what I found on the internets, uh, you can blame the, the Celts for that. Us Irishmen are to blame for that. Uh, the plant is native to the Great Britain area and was associated with good luck. So kissing under the mistletoe was thought to lead to marriage. Do with that information whatever you want. What about eggnog? Eggnog. Well, uh, you can blame the British, you weirdos. You and you all like eggnog? Don't. Don't. Eggnog is like pumpkin spice. It's available year-round, but for some reason, we spend a month drinking it. No one actually likes it. My dad says he likes eggnog. I just think he wants to drive my mother crazy. Or what about saying Merry Christmas at Scrooge, by the way? Because uh, I could be a bit of a Scrooge come Christmas time. Um, uh, Merry Christmas. Well, you can blame Charles Dickens and his wonderful book that's been put in so many different versions uh, a Christmas Carol. You should read the book. It's really short. Uh, you Kentucky fans, just listen to it. That'd be easier than reading it. Um, um, but we can blame him because from that you get the Merry Christmas. You remember Scrooge doing all that. But what about gift giving? What about gift giving? Where does that come from? I mean, I'm willing to bet that leading up to Thanksgiving, you weren't panicking uh, on Amazon or Walmart or any of that, looking for gifts for your third cousin twice removed on your grandmother's side. I don't think you were doing that. We do it in December, but not Thanksgiving. We don't do it for Flag Day or even Fourth of July. It's just Christmas we do that. Where does that come from? Well, if you were to Google it, there's a lot of options here. Some want to blame the uh, winter solstice traditions that predate Christianity where the wealthy would bless the poor. Some want to blame a St. Nicholas, an actual guy who, uh, according to tradition, punched the heretic Arius in the face. But nevertheless, he, he's famous for uh, giving a man uh, uh, money for a dowry so his daughters could, could marry. He would sneak into their house and put in the stockings where a lot of that tradition probably comes from. But let me tell you what I thought it was growing up. I had always blamed the Magi. It just made sense. We give gifts because the Magi gave Jesus gifts. But can we be honest? They weren't very good gift givers. Ladies, you have a one, two-year-old, whatever age Jesus is at this time. He's in a house. You see it there in verse 10, 11. He is in a house. They bring the gifts to the house. And here are these guys with gifts for your baby boy. What do you hope those gifts are? Well, probably formula or uh, diapers or uh, something like that. What did they bring? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. No one has ever asked that for their baby boy or girl for Christmas. Yeah, that's precisely what the Magi brought, which tells us that either they were terrible gift givers or these gifts tell us something about the one who is receiving them. I think that is the ladder that Matthew wants us to see. The significance is not that they brought gifts. 
but what the gifts were and who is the one they were given to. Let's start here with the scene and the verse uh, 11 verses, just real briefly here. And when it comes to the Magi, of course, they are found only here in the New Testament. When it comes to the Magi, we usually care about the things that Matthew didn't. For example, how many Magi were there? Or wise men, if you love uh, a contradiction of terms. How many Magi were there? Well, according to we three kings of Orient are, according to every nativity scene that you, you have ever seen, uh, we say there's three. Well, the Bible never tells us. It could have been three, could have been 30. We don't know. It likely means that it would have been however many plural magi there were with an entourage with them. Beyond that, we simply don't know because Matthew couldn't care less. Where are the magi from? Again, the text doesn't tell us uh, explicitly. We three kings of Orient are. We're pretty sure they're not from the Orient, which means you shouldn't be singing that song if you want anything biblically accurate. I'm only joking, but... But um, uh, what we can tell is they are actually probably from Persia. In fact, it looks like we can trace the Magi not to Matthew, but to the book of Daniel. Time won't allow us to go into any details, but if you want references, Daniel 1, 4, 2, 24, and 2, 48. But in essence, what, what were they here for? Why, why have them? Is they are in charge of crowning kings. And they come to crown a king. That is why they come asking for the king of the Jews. It is also why they first go to the guy with the title king of the Jews, Herod. But when they meet Herod, they realize this guy may think he's king, but he's not the king that we are looking for. And so they start seeking out the true king of the Jews. But I want you to notice also, they don't merely come to, to crown the king. They are coming to worship the king. So with that said, let's look real quickly at the symbol, the first symbol of gold. What is the significance of gold? Well, if you study your Bible, study ancient Near Eastern history, even we see this today, uh, gold is associated with three things. The first is wealth and beauty. Wealth and beauty. This is really sort of common sense, isn't it? This is still the case today. We see all the way back in Genesis that the Garden of Eden was saturated with gold for both beautiful reasons. The garden was beautiful and also because it was overrun with abundance and wealth. Abraham was a man wealthy with much gold. Solomon smothered his, his palace and his temple with gold because it was beautiful. To this day, we still associate gold with the same thing. How many of you all in this week have seen commercials or ads or something telling you you should diversify your portfolio with Gold and precious metals. One commercial will say that gold has never been worth nothing. Right? We, we still get this even today. But it isn't just that gold is associated with wealth. It is associated with beauty. I'm willing to bet many of you married folk, you pull off the ring off your finger. It's one of two things. Chances are, unless you're a Generation Z and you're just a weird generation. It is likely either gold or silver. Why? Because we associate gold with beauty. Mine is silver um, because when we went to pick out rings, well, not when we went to pick out rings, my wife made it very clear to me, if you're going to get me an engagement ring, wink, wink, hint, hint, I don't want a gold one. I want silver. I think they're prettier. And so that lasted for about five years. And I, I guess... Is everyone back to gold? I, I, I couldn't care less. Don't even answer the question. Uh, but we, we associate gold with beauty and with wealth. And those two go hand in hand. 
uh, of course. Now, the irony here is that Jesus is never associated with either of these. Think about it. He is an itinerant preacher without a home. That's why you get in Matthew 8, foxes have hoes, Jesus told a man who want to follow Jesus. Birds have nests. I don't have a my pillow to lay on. I don't have anything. And yet he's given gold. Why? Because this is what you give uh, for, for the wealthy. This is what you give to the mighty. Same thing in terms of beauty. Uh, his, his death was, was uh, humiliating, horrendous, and debilitating. We get this in, in the prophecies. Uh, for the Messiah grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we could look upon him. He was a nobody. A nobody. Yet we see in the story of Jesus, the Magi see what no one else does. To the rest of the world, he's the son of poor peasants in the middle of nowhere in the Roman Empire. But to the Magi, they see, no, he is far more than that. He is the eternal one. who is the creator of all things. He is Messiah And the mystery of how the creator becomes the creature, how the holy becomes mortal. So they bring with him gold. But gold isn't just associated with wealth and beauty. It is also associated with royalty. That makes sense. Because who has all the money and all the land and all the the beautiful stuff? Well, it's the king. This makes absolute, complete sense. And this is why you you see throughout ancient world, right, that uh, the, the Egyptian pharaoh would be buried with all of his gold possessions. The early explorers of, of the new world, what did they come looking for? Gold to take back to the king. Even the legend of King Midas, who when he wanted to touch everything and turn anything, what did he choose? Gold. It's always associated with royalty. In the Old Testament, who's the one who, who's hoarding all the gold? It is Solomon. So if you were to read, as we did earlier this year, the story of Solomon, we, we get several passages we can look at. Here's one in, in, in chapter 10 of 1 Kings. The weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. The mark of the beast. Everyone panicked. King Solomon had 200 shields of beaten gold. 600 shields of gold uh, went into each shield. All King's uh, drinking, Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. All the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Why? Because silver was not considered anything in the days of Solomon. You see the association between royalty, wealth, and beauty. Gold is everywhere you could find it. And so what the Magi do is they bring gold to the one they perceive to be king. Again, what is it that Magi do? What is their primary function? They crown kings. They crown kings. And whoever possesses all the gold is king. You all know my affection for J.R. Tolkien's Middle Earth world. If you read The Hobbit, which is the easiest to read for you Kentucky fans, um, you, you'll find that, that the title of king is associated with whoever owns all the gold under the mountain. So the king of the mountain starts out as the dragon. He's hoarding the gold until, until the doors come. Now they become king of the mountain. Why? Because gold is associated with kings and always has been. They somehow see this poor child as the rich king. They see this endangered toddler as the rightful heir and ruler of the throne. One of the great promises of the Old Testament regarding the Messiah is that when the Messiah comes, he will be of the line of David, therefore 
king. And Matthew, you cannot read the book without being overwhelmed with that seminal fact about who Jesus is. I've shown you this before, so I don't want to regurgitate all of it again. But if you will, go back to the very first verse of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew 1, 1. And and to, to us, it's a boring verse. But it sets up everything Matthew wants to accomplish in this gospel. Matthew 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus. Don't fall asleep yet. This is the part you need to see. The son of David, son of Abraham. Now, what follows in verse 2, going all the way down to verse 18, is the genealogy of Jesus, where he tells us he's the son of David and son of Abraham. Why, then, does he say, before you read his genealogy, look for these two names, Abraham and David. Why is that? Because he wants the reader to make no mistake. This person who I'm about to tell you his story, he is a descendant of Abraham, thus he is Jewish. He is fully Hebrew of the line of Abraham. But you also need to know he is of the tribe of Judah, of the line of David of Bethlehem. Therefore, he is the king of the Jews. In a single verse, he tells us everything you've read in the Old Testament is summarized in the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is king. And Matthew goes out of his way to do this. After all, we're looking at a passage where where we have the crowning of Jesus, the recognition of Jesus as king by Magi. In chapters 3 and 4, the message of the kingdom is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The temptation of Satan is that he's going to offer him all the kingdoms. And Jesus says, I have far more than this that I already have that will not be given to me. They are mine already. The Sermon on the Mount is all about how Jesus teaches and preaches as one having the authority of a king. When, when he calms the, the storm, what is it that the, that the uh, apostles say? They say, who is this guy who rules and reigns over the natural universe? When the demons come, they say, is it, is it, is it now you're going to judge us as king? When, when Jesus enters into uh, the, the, the Israel, enters in Jerusalem on the donkey, what, is the, what are they doing? Hail, king of the Jews. When Jesus stands up and tells about what the kingdom looks like, he speaks as one who is king. The kingdom of God is like a sower who went out to sow seed. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a net full of fish. The kingdom of God, this and that. What about when Jesus tells us about his return, his second coming? He describes himself as a king ruling and reigning over the cosmos. When Peter confesses Christ as the son of God, Jesus states clearly, I will give you keys to my kingdom. And what about his, his execution? What is at the center of why he is executed by Rome? Because he claimed to be king. And we see it in the fact that he is crowned with a a faux crown and he is declared, this is Jesus who claims to be king of the Jews. And his resurrection, what does he tell? His last words in the Gospel of Matthew. I am king. Now go and make disciples. Not disciples of you. Disciples of an idea. But disciples of a king. Go and make disciples of all the nations, for he is the king of the cosmos. Jesus is king. He is king, and thus they come bearing gold. Let's share one more why the gold is significant. Gold gold symbolizes divinity. And this makes sense, that if gold is fitting for a wealthy, powerful king, it is fitting for God's. Think about when, when the Israelites were marching through 
the wilderness. They come to camp at Mount Sinai. You remember the story, right? That um, Moses takes his inner circle he, and, and they go up to part of the mountain. Then Moses goes the rest of the way and he hangs out with God for like 40 days or 40 nights. And he's just, he's in the zone hanging out with God while everyone else is down here. And, and they're thinking, well, we need to form a committee because we don't know what to do. Moses is gone. And you remember what they do? They take the gold they had gotten from Egypt. They melt it down and they make a golden calf and they worship it. Where does that come from? Because in the ancient world, gold is closely connected to divinity. You would worship the gods who were made of gold. This is why we are warned of this in the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, you shall not, you shall make, shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor those made of gold. Or consider Daniel in uh, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What is the great statue that they refused to bow down to made of? Not cardboard, not straw, not wood, but gold. Again, the Magi seem to know something that the rest of the world doesn't. In their midst is divinity enfleshed. As mysterious as that idea might be, they come bringing gold because they know that it doesn't just represent wealth and beauty and power. It doesn't just represent royalty and might. It represents divinity. And we know this because they, the text is very clear. In verse 11, they go into the house. They see the child. Again, he's not an infant. He's, he's a toddler. And Mary, his mother. And they fall down to first and foremost worship him. They worship him. Because they're not just simply acknowledging the rule and reign of a king. They're acknowledging God in flesh in the very presence. The gold tells us who this child is. He is divine. So why the gold? The Magi understood that Jesus' birth, what many still failed to see even after his resurrection and ascension. Christ is the divine king. Now, what we do with that information is what matters the most. What do we do with that? You have two options. Either you crown him as the magi do, acknowledge him as the divine king, or you crucify him as a fraud. But let me just warn you about the latter option. We tried crucifying him before, and it didn't work out which to me means we only have one option. We crown him as king. We crown him as the divine king put on flesh. But we Americans, when we hear king, we don't really know what that means. We've never actually served under the rule of a monarch. What the king says, we do. What the king demands, we obey. Without protests, without riots, Without complaints, we must come and submit ourselves fully to the king. We must do what the Magi do. We come bearing gifts. We come bearing our lives and we prostrate ourselves before him, acknowledging who he is and moving forward to obey everything he would have us to do. They come bearing gold because he is king. And not just any king. The world is full of many kings, particularly throughout history. That he is God veiled in flesh. 
He is Emmanuel. Let us, therefore, not just Christmas for the rest of our lives, acknowledge him as our divine king. And let us shape our lives around our Lord and Savior. The one who created the world became a creature so he may be crucified to save sinners like you and me. They brought gold. Let us, therefore, bring our lives. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, I ask that you would be so kind to help us this morning that you would convict our